So the title of the message this morning is The Cleansing Fountain of God's Grace. The Cleansing Fountain of God's Grace. And I'll show you where we're going to get that here out of these chapters. Again, we're finishing the book. We've been in Zechariah now for most of the spring, and I I hope that as we've gone through it, I hope that there's been a, a benefit to you. I hope it's been encouraging to you. I know it's been hard sometimes to engage with the text. It's it's hard to read prophetic writings sometimes. I know it's also sometimes hard to engage with ancient Jewish culture, but I hope that even though it's been hard to sludge through some of that, I hope that there's been these clear, resounding themes. And, and, and in particular, I want to turn your attention to, if you want to flip there, you can, but in chapter 8, verses 13 to 15, I think there's a sort of a summary of the main theme of the book. Remember, Zechariah is written to the people in in Jerusalem after they've just returned from exile, and God is trying to encourage the people to build the temple, right? He's saying that that he's going to bless them. He's going to promise all these good things for them in the future. He's, He's asking them to build the temple so that he can be present with them. And again, in chapter 8, I think the summation of the main theme here, uh, verse 13 of chapter 8. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah, and house of Israel. So again, they've been, a, a, they've been cursed. They've been in exile. They've been condemned. They've been oppressed. He says, but so I will save you. You've been this. Now I'm promising salvation. And you shall be a blessing. So fear not. But let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoke me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So fear not. That's this main theme that we see here is this purpose of God to tell his people, I'm going to do you good. I'm going to bring blessing upon you. And of course, the way in which the Father promised to bring good is entirely wrapped up in the coming of their King, in the coming of their Savior. As we've seen so clearly in this book, all of it points us forward to Jesus Christ. So that's what I hope you've gotten out of it. God's going to do good for his people, and he's going to do it through the arrival of Jesus The main idea is, fear not, I purpose to do you good, says the Lord. And again, the whole book then is made up of visions and prophecies of how God is going to accomplish this, how he's going to save Israel and make her a blessing. And that's to give them hope. That's to give them hope. This is a people who have been suffering so much. They've been so oppressed and so downtrodden in exile. This is a message to give them hope. And to make them strong. So, I said we're going to cover the end of the book now here. We've gone through 10 chapters. There's 14 in total. How does it all end? How does it all end? I'll tell you in five minutes, all right? I am not going to exegete the whole chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14. I know you're disappointed. I can hear the silent moans. You, You were really wanting to be here for six hours for us to go through that together. Uh, I'm going to give you the five-minute version of how it ends, just kind of run through it very briefly. But I want to say this. When I say how it all ends, there's a twofold meaning to that. This is not just how the book of Zechariah ends, but in the ending of the book of Zechariah, we see actually how the world ends. This is a looking forward to 
It's an eschatological vision. It's, this is the end times. This is how it all ends. So how does it all end? Here we go. It's not laid out as a chronological timeline of the events of the end times, but you can get a basic idea of how it plays out in the last days by reading these chapters together as sort of one unit, sort of one big picture idea. And there's this phrase that helps us to know throughout these chapters that they're meant to be read together with that sort of end view in mind, this phrase, on that day. We'll read that over and over again. Well, actually, I'm not going to read it over and over again because I told you I'm not going to exegete the whole thing. But if you were to read it, you would see that phrase nine times throughout these chapters. On that day, this appears to be, again, things that will happen during the period of time that the Bible refers to as the last days. So here we go. Right before this, we were promised the coming of the king, right? That was what chapter 9 was all about. Behold, your king is coming to you. We talked about the arrival of the Messiah, this one who would come in power to judge the world, but first who would come in humility to save his friends, right? Your king is coming to you. The coming king that was promised in chapter 9, by the time we get to chapter 11, we see he's been largely rejected by his people. We see that in chapter 11, verses 7 to 14. This king that they were promised and had been awaiting, they will actually reject. And as a result, the Lord will turn for a time away from them again, his people, the Jewish people. He will turn away from them again and give them over to their oppressors yet again. That's, what's, that's what they're told in, in chapter 11. And we actually see that play out. And I would say we're living in that, that reality even still. Because after the rejection of the Messiah, indeed, Rome came into Jerusalem and laid siege to it. They, they knocked this second temple down again in the year 70 AD. So they were, they were laid low again. God turned from them as they rejected their Messiah. And to this day, we see that rejection and that turning away. God has told them, I have turned my attention to the nations, to the Gentiles, until some later day when he will, again, mercifully turn his attention towards them. But that's where we're in now. And that's what we see in chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, we're told that there will be a day in the future when all of the nations of the world will gather against Israel for battle. And this is, this is uh, you're familiar with this term, Armageddon. We, we see Armageddon playing out here in chapter 12. But God tells them that though, even though all the nations of the world are going to turn their attention towards them, to oppress them, he will defend her and he will overthrow all of the other armies of the world. And at the same time this is happening, the people of Israel will realize that they have rejected their Messiah. They'll realize that they have crucified Jesus Christ, the King, and they will in mass repent at that time. And many Jewish people will turn to him and will be saved. That's chapter 12, verses 10 to 14. And again, I think this is what's being pointed to in chapters like Romans 11, where Paul talks about there will be a time when, when Israel will, will, will turn back, right? Where all of Israel will be saved, he says. And so in chapter 13, God shows us that he will clean his people, he'll cleanse them. He'll remove all of their sin. He will remove 
all of the idolatry from their midst, chapter 13, 1 to 6. And the second coming of Christ will occur at this time. And he will establish his reign in Jerusalem. That's chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. And the end of it all is when Jesus comes back and establishes his reign, the last half of chapter 14, the nations will finally be judged. All of the, all, all the people who are not God's people, all of the, the rebellious peoples of the world, the nations will be judged. And the full and final reign of King Jesus will commence. That's the end of chapter 14. So there you go. That's the end of Zechariah in a nutshell. It's this, it's this big picture of what happens with the coming king. He's rejected, right? They're, they're, they're turned away from. God promises to, to turn his attention to the Gentiles. We see the end times, a turning back to the Lord, the coming of Christ, and the judgment of the world. Thus, all of the promises that God has made to do his people good will be fulfilled. That's how it all ends. And that's why I hope you can see now why I opted for a five-minute Cliff Notes version of these chapters. It all fits together as one unit. What's the main point? Here's what I, I hope you get from that. The main point is this. The king is coming. The king has indeed come in Jesus Christ. And so the question is, will he be received as king or will he be rejected? For you, individually, will you receive him or will you reject him? And what God has to tell us here is that salvation is here. Goodness is here for those who receive him. And judgment awaits those who do not. Now, where are we going to focus our attention for our sermon today? In the middle of these chapters, I think is the most important promise in Zechariah. I told you the main point of Zechariah is fear not, God purposes to do you good. But right in the middle of these chapters, we see, I think, the most important promise of all, and it's in chapter 13, verse 1. I want you to look there. I say this is the most important promise because all of the other benefits promised to those who receive the Savior, to receive salvation in Jesus, they all depend on this one promise. Zechariah 13, 1. The Lord says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. On that day there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. He promises here that a fountain would be opened in the coming future and that this fountain is the thing that will remove their sin. It will remove their guilt. And that's the foundation for all of the other blessings promised because the only way sinful people like you and me can experience the goodness and the riches and the inheritance of God is if our sins are forgiven. The work of this fountain is necessary if any of us hope to be saved from the coming judgment of God. We have to have our sins cleansed and forgiven. 
So to understand this promise in the context of Zechariah, I want to offer four points to you. The first one is this. First, we're going to ask, what is this fountain? And why is it needed? The second, we're going to look at this fountain as an instrument of God's grace. Thirdly, we're going to see that this grace is sufficient for the entire world. And fourthly, we're going to see, I hope, I hope we'll see why it's important for each one of us to apply this message to ourselves. All right. So first point, what is this fountain and why is it needed? What are fountains for? Well, fountains are for cleansing. That's what it's for. It's like, it's like sort of like a shower we would think of today, right? Your, your shower head is a fountain head. Fountains are for cleansing. That's what it's for. And this verse tells us that what the people need to be cleansed from, again, is their sin, their uncleanness. Now, I want you to, to hear that, and I want you to hear it through the ears of the original recipients of this prophecy. And those original recipients would be, of course, Old Testament era Jewish people. They're hearing this, this decree that this day is coming when this fountain that they will need will come and cleanse them of their sins. There's this mechanism that they need, in other words, for the forgiveness of their sins. But they might, they might kind of recoil at that a little bit and say, I thought we already had that. I thought we already have a mechanism for the, 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 the cleansing of our sins. And by this, they would mean they already had the sacrificial system. That sacrificial system, by the way, which had just been recently reinstated in the newly rebuilt temple. That's part of what they were rebuilding the temple for. So they could begin to worship God again and, and, and offer these sacrifices for their sins. So what was happening in the Old Testament sacrificial system? Well, animal sacrifices were made regularly at the temple, again, to atone for the sins of the people. That's what the whole point of the sacrifice was about. So the question, what is this fountain and why would we need it, would be a very legitimate one for them to ask. Now, before we go further, I know, I, I realize as a modern reader like the rest of you, that, you know, we have to acknowledge the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is hard for us to understand as modern readers, right? Sometimes you, you know, I don't know how much you've thought about it, but when you think about this system of offering animals and sacrifices and blood required for the forgiveness of sins, it can sound to us quite barbaric, right? To kill an animal, to sacrifice anything in order to appease the wrath of a god to us sounds not just strange, but maybe barbaric. So what do we make of this system? How do we make sense of it? You know, in all the years that I've taught the Bible, I think this has been a challenging thing to, to try to teach and to understand. But I, I have to say this. This system, this sacrificial system in the Old Testament, ought to make more sense, I think, to us now than perhaps any other time before in our lifetime. And the reason why I say that is this, because we are a society that is longing for and demanding of justice, right? That's, what, that's the big cry right now in our culture is a cry out for justice. We seem to be taking the idea of justice more seriously today than perhaps ever before, at least in my lifetime. 
So I think we should be able to understand this. What is true justice and what does it entail? What do we, what do we believe? What are we saying right now that true justice ought to entail? I think there's two things that are fairly clear. One is that there needs to be an accountability that leaves no grievous offense covered up. That would be justice, right? Accountability that leaves nothing covered up. And then two, a punishment that actually fits the crime. That's what I think we mean when we say we demand justice. And that's what the Old Testament sacrificial system was meant to symbolize. An accountability that leaves nothing covered up and a punishment that fits the crime. Think about it. If the creator of the universe is the only true and living God, if he is holy, 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 meaning that he is the source and the perfect embodiment of goodness and of truth and of love and purity and compassion and righteousness and fairness and every other thing of beauty and every other virtue that we value as true and right in this world, if that's who God is, and hint, he, that is who God is, right? If that's who he is, then to turn away from him in rebellion and disbelief and disobedience would have to constitute the highest crime and greatest offense that anybody could ever commit. You know, every act of wickedness that we rightly condemn today, and there are many, but think of things like murder or rape or racism or abuse or oppression. That's just naming some of the, the big hitters, just a few. Every single one of those grievous, wicked things is simply a horizontal outflow of a vertical rejection of God. And that defines the very essence of sin. We, because we have rejected God and his goodness and his fairness and his righteousness, that's where every other manifestation of sin goes out towards one another. That, the very essence of sin is the rejection of God. The source of beauty and goodness and truth. Now, if that's the reality, if the punishment is to fit the crime, in other words, if justice is really to be served, then the punishment for that kind of wickedness must be of the most severe kind. And that's why the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. The most severe kind. The sacrificial system offered for the people a visual representation of that. A visual representation of the heinous nature of sin. It deserves the shedding of blood. And even in death, it deserves eternal torment in the prison of hell. That would be justice. If we're really justice seekers... We'd have to agree with that. That would be justice. And I say this ought to be something that our, our, our modern ears would agree with and would receive 
with a satisfied level of understanding, but I also recognize we don't. We don't receive that with satisfied understanding because there's an irony and there's a hypocrisy in our definitions of justice. Why is that? Let me, let me identify the irony in our definitions of justice. We would say that a government or a legal system is only good if it actually holds people accountable. It's only good if it actually hands out punishments that fit the crime. If we look at our government and they don't hold people accountable and they don't hand out punishments that fits the crime, we say it's not good. And yet when it comes to God, we say the exact opposite. We say he can't be good and he can't be loving if he does hold people accountable and hand out punishments that fit the crime. Right? No, my God's a God of love. He would never show wrath. He would never condemn sin. Really? That's irony. And it's hypocrisy because we so often desire the accountability and justice for others when their wickedness is uncovered. But then when we look at ourselves, we want anything but justice when our sins are uncovered, right? We want mercy. We want grace. We want understanding. <laughs> and that's, that's if we actually even see our sin being uncovered or our wickedness for what it really is because there's an honesty and a humility required to see your own wickedness. And I think most of the time, most of us don't have it. That's hypocrisy. We sure see it in other people. If we really understood justice and we really desired to see it carried out, and by the way, that could only really happen if we truly understood the holiness of God. If we really desired to see justice carried out, it would quickly reveal to us why the Old Testament sacrificial system wasn't actually sufficient. Why it wasn't enough to cleanse sinners, to cleanse lawbreakers permanently. And the writer of Hebrews makes this clear in Hebrews chapter 10. He says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, so he's looking back at the Old Testament system and says, it's a shadow of what's to come. It's not the true form. It can never, by the same animal sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It's not sufficient. For it is impossible, he says, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why does he say that? He says that because God is an infinitely worthy God. And our sin against him, no matter what sin, how, how much sin, any sin, every sin, it is an infinitely awful offense because he is an infinitely worthy God. And an infinitely awful offense deserves an infinitely awful punishment. So what we're being told here in verse 1 of chapter 13 is that a fountain, a new fountain, is going to have to be opened. A new cleansing mechanism is going to have to be given that, that's not going to be the body of an animal. 
It's not going to be something that has to be done every year like the Old Testament sacrificial system, but something that's infinitely better, infinitely more valuable. What God is showing the people through Zechariah is that if anybody is going to get saved from sin, really, truly cleansed, a new and lasting cleansing fountain has to be opened. So that's what the fountain is and why it's needed. Secondly, we're going to look at the fountain then for what it is, an instrument of God's grace. The fountain as an instrument of God's grace. If the judgment of God against sin brings true justice, the judgment of God brings true justice, then any cleansing or any forgiveness shown to the guilty is an act of mercy. It's an act of grace. So how does the fountain bring grace? I want to kind of walk you mentally back through some of the passages that we've covered over the last few months. Do you remember chapter 3 at all? I'm sure you don't, right? But in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, Zechariah shows the people that forgiveness of sin is connected to the coming of the Messiah. And he calls him there the branch. You remember that name? The branch. And at the end of verse 8, God says this. He says, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. And he says, And I will remove the guilt of this land in a single day. This points perfectly to the death of Jesus Christ. This promise in Zechariah points perfectly to the death of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' death, justice and mercy meet. And they flow perfectly together. How? Because the due penalty of sin is paid by a death. Not an animal death. Not just a, a human being death. But the death of the Son of God. An infinitely valuable life. The due penalty of sin is paid by a death. But the death of the infinitely worthy Christ fully pays that debt for us and therefore cleanses us from the stain of all of our sin. Jesus is the Messiah. This has been told to us over and over again through the prophecy of Zechariah. I mean, there's so many things here that just point forward to him and are amazingly fulfilled in him. And we've seen that over and over again over the last few weeks. But here's the thing about the Messiah's sacrifice. It does not need to be repeated. Because as we're told here in chapter 3, he will deal with the sin. He will cleanse it all in a single act, on a single day. One single act of atonement for all. And the author of Hebrews, who we just read from, who said, yes, these animal sacrifices aren't sufficient. The blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. Says of the Christ, but his sacrifice absolutely does. Hebrews 9, he says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but he entered into heaven itself. He didn't just go to the temple and offer a sacrifice. He went to what the temple represents, heaven itself. Now, to appear in the presence of God 
on our behalf. And it wasn't to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood that's not his own. For then, Jesus would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's what he did. That's who he is. That's why this fountain is an instrument of God's grace. But here's the thing. In order for the fountain of Christ to take away sin, you and I, sinful men and women, must turn to him. We must repent. We must call on him for mercy. And in that, even in that, we see yet again another act of God's grace. Because as I noted before, sinners would never repent on our own. God's Holy Spirit has to act first. He's got to bring us to see our wickedness for what it really is. He's got to open our eyes to our need. He's got to convict us of our sin. And in Zechariah chapter 12, there's a prophecy that this very thing will happen in Israel. Look over there, because I know it's just on the, I think, the page before where you're probably at. Zechariah 12, verse 10. The Lord says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of compassion and supplication, so that when they look on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and they'll weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. There's a prophecy here that Zechariah is giving. He's foretelling that the people will have pierced and killed the Messiah. And that at some point, they will be deeply grieved by it. They'll see it for what it was. They'll be sorry for their sin. Now notice that this prophecy in Zechariah 12, again, has been fully fulfilled in Jesus. That's what they did at the crucifixion of Jesus. They pierced him. They cleansed him. Jesus, whose hands and feet and side were pierced, which opened the fountain of cleansing. The Apostle John writes of this in John chapter 19. He says, at the end of the crucifixion, after Jesus has died, it says, it says, but when the soldiers came, and they came to Jesus on the cross, and they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth that you may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture that says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. He's saying Zechariah 12 was fulfilled in that moment. So the crucifixion of Jesus opens up the flow of that fountain as his side is pierced. But secondly, God is going to convict, it says here, the house of David and the dwellers in Jerusalem of their sin. And then thirdly, they'll be filled with sorrow for their sin. They will cry out to God for mercy. And again, this happened at Pentecost. 
You remember when Peter preached the sermon there, his first sermon, and he preached to the Jews and says, this Jesus whom you have crucified, he is the Lord, he is the Messiah. And they recognized what they had done and they wept and they cry out, what shall we do to be saved? That began to be fulfilled in the Jews' response to Peter's Pentecost sermon. And once that happened, the fountain of God's forgiveness began to flow freely and take away the guilt of Jerusalem. And it's still flowing today. So Zechariah can say in chapter 14, Jerusalem shall be inhabited. There will be no more curse. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And in chapter 8 he says, I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. It's happening now and it will happen in fullness at the end. All the promises made to Israel in the book of Zechariah, indeed in the whole Bible, depend on this opened fountain of Christ's blood and the repentance of God's people, and all of it is an act of God's grace. But thirdly, we might ask, who are these promises for? of grace for. And so the third point is this. It's a grace sufficient, not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. It's a grace sufficient for the whole world. Who are these promises of grace for? As we're reading in Zechariah, the most obvious answer is the Jewish people to whom it was originally given, right? That's, who, that's who's hearing this at first. And even though they've displeased God, by rejecting his son, many even to this day, as it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, God still promises mercy to them. God still holds out this promise to them. He will one day lift the veil off of their minds, 2 Corinthians 3. He will one day take away the full hardening of their hearts, he says in Romans 11, and he'll pour out a spirit of grace upon them and they will turn to Jesus and they will confess him as Lord and Savior. This is definitely a message of hope for the Jewish people. But we need to hear this too. The message of Zechariah is also a word of hope to us. Non-Jewish Christians because if we understand what Christ has done, not just for the Jews, but for the whole world in opening up the fountain of his blood, then we too can know that we are included in these promises as well. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 1, that great verse of not being ashamed of the gospel? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, but also to the Greek, also to the Gentile, the non-Jewish people. That's us. When we hear God say in Zechariah chapter 2, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come and I'm going to dwell in your midst. We can't also help but hear the words of Hebrews that are addressed to Christians. When he says, you, Christians, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. God is dwelling with Jerusalem, and you are there. You're brought in. We remember that in Christ, we're no longer alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2. 
the hope and the joy and the glory of Zechariah is also our hope and our joy and our glory as we are children of Abraham and citizens of the new Jerusalem as Christians. And God has been good enough to say that even clearly in the book of Zechariah itself. In chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and they shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of you, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And he repeats that promise about many nations in chapter 9, chapter 8, over and over again. So what does it mean for us? What does it mean for you? Remember I said that we need to see that what this fountain is, that it's an instrument of God's grace, that it's sufficient for the whole world. And I said, and I hope, I hope the last thing we'll do is we'll all reckon with like, what does this mean for me? What do I need to do with this? Listen, many nations shall join themselves to the Lord. Christians, that's you and me. That's you and me. The fountain of forgiveness has been opened up for you. And if you are cleansed by that fountain, then again, every promise made here, all the subsequent promises to God's people belong to you as well. He says, remember, I have purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. These promises belong to all of us who come to the fountain for cleansing. Don't forget the, the, the context of, of the, 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 the whole thing this morning. We, we've heard this you know, five-minute summary of the, the last you know, four or five chapters of the book of Zechariah, and we recognize that it's this picture of the end of all things. Okay, don't, don't forget that. Jesus has come, he's rejected, he's coming back, and he's judging. And in the meantime, he offers grace to those who believe in him, who receive him as the Savior. That's the, the big picture of all of this. And if all of the other prophecies in Zechariah have come true, and we've made a pretty strong case over the last few weeks that they've come true, then we can be certain that this one will too. So hear that this morning. Judgment day is coming. It's coming. The king is coming back. He will return and he will judge the people of the world once and for all. Justice will be served. Yet again in his first coming, as we talked about last week, he was not on a mission of judgment, but a mission of mercy. He came first to make his enemies his friends. He came to, gave us, to give us grace. And the only ones who will be saved from judgment on that final day are the ones who have been cleansed by the fountain, Jesus. Justice for us who've trusted in him by faith has fallen on him instead of us. That's the good news of the gospel. You know, we, I didn't want to spend a ton of time walking through all the end time stuff because I think, unfortunately, in our day and age, we spend way too much time trying to figure out the chronology of the end times, right? 
You, you hear lots of sermons. You probably read lots of books. You know, is there going to be a rapture? When would that happen? And, and, and when, when is Jesus going to come back? And, and, and this thousand-year reign that we hear in Revelation, is that, is that a literal reign of Christ? Is it figurative? What sign should we be looking for? There's lots of things to get distracted about. We think about the end times and the end of all things. I think those things are all minor. It's not to say that they're not important, but they're minor. The question that we need to ask when we think about the end of all things, we think about the coming of Christ, we think about the, 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 the impending judgment day is simply this. Where do I stand? Have I been cleansed by the fountain of God's grace or am I under the coming judgment? That's the only question that matters. Where do I stand? You don't have to be certain about all the details of Christ's comings, but you better be sure that you know where you stand. And so that's why I say again, Zechariah 13.1 is the most important promise of this book and maybe one of the most important promises of the whole Bible. There's a fountain God will open up for the cleansing of all of our sin and uncleanness. Do you know where you stand? I want to offer to you that you can know where you stand. And I want to just invite, actually, our worship team to come up here. There's an old hymn written by William Cooper from this verse, Zechariah 13.1. And in that hymn, he tells us, I think, everything we need to know about knowing where we stand. Let me read a few of the verses, and then we'll have an opportunity to sing them together. He says, There is a fountain filled with blood that's drawn from Emmanuel's vein. And sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stain. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Ever since by faith I saw that stream that his flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Can you sing that song this morning? There's a fountain, I know it, it's Christ. It's his death, it's his cross. And if I stand under that flood, if that, that flows on me, all my sins are washed away. I rejoice to see it. I recognize I'm as vile as the thief who hung next to him. I see my sin for what it is. But in that day, I rejoice because I believe that my sins are washed away by what he's accomplished in opening the fountain for me. Can you sing that song this morning? I want to invite you to stand. And as our closing prayer, let's sing that song together. <laughs>